Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is an author, a scholar, and a strategic consultant. He speaks five languages, is the founder of Atlas Organization, a strategic consultancy, and holds a PhD from Oxford in China-India relations. He's the author of the new book, China's Vision of Victory. Dr. Jonathan Ward, welcome to Words Matter. Good morning. It's great to be here. Before we talk about your book, let's start with your background. So you began your academic career studying Russian language and Russian culture. And by all indications, it seemed like you were on track to become a Russia expert. And then you changed. How and why did you switch your focus from Russia to China? Sure. So I actually did both languages as an undergrad, but with an undergrad degree in Russian language and literature. I'd read Russian literature as a high school student, thought it was very interesting. When I got to college, I realized I could essentially take any language in the world that interested me. So as about an 18-year-old, I made this decision that I was going to learn the hardest languages in the world that would allow me to communicate with as many people as humanly possible. That was sort of my goal as an 18-year-old. And started into Russian, uh, got into Chinese. I had Spanish at that point. I had some French, things like that growing up. And then got very into travel. So essentially rough travel backpacking. I mean, going out with a 28-liter backpack, staying in remote areas, villages, etc. After my Columbia degree, I wound up spending five years living out of a backpack in Russia, China, India, Latin America, and the Middle East, learning multiple dialects of Arabic. I peaked at about 11 languages when it came to being able to get around properly. So uh, Indonesian on cargo ships around the South China Sea, Indonesian archipelago. And finally just was so um, essentially wasted physically. Like I really was run into the ground by all these experiences, injuries, illnesses, all kinds of things. But I learned so much about the world. It was just wonderful. And I wound up, um, I was in Cairo at the time, spending a lot of time with American archaeologists. And one of them had done his PhD at Cambridge. And he said, listen, you you should think about going to Oxford or Cambridge. And you're going to go and meet all these people that have dedicated their lives to the subjects you're interested in. Why don't you do that? And I thought, oh, never. I'm going to sort of ride until I die kind of thing. And I finally realized, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. And I started looking at the brochures I applied. I got in and I got in for Russian and Chinese. Uh, there was no record of me learning Arabic because I learned it all essentially in mosques in Egypt and Syria and Jordan. I wound up uh, getting in for to study Russian and Chinese nationalism, essentially the, the worldview of the people of these two countries and their government and how that all came together. That interested me a great deal, having traveled and lived at a very sort of uh, local level in all of the countries I was in. And after a little while, I, I actually switched into India, China. I'd lived in India when I was younger. And my supervisor sort of encouraged me in that direction because very little work had been done on the sort of rise and fall of China-India relations in the 20th century. So that was my sort of travels, led to an interest in history, led to scholarship. And then when I got back to the United States in 2017, the first thing that happened was I got hired by the Pentagon to help them figure out Chinese long-term strategy in what we now call the Indo-Pacific. So the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, all these regions. And they told me, we want you to look at the next 30 years. And I thought, oh my God, I'm a historian. How am I going to do that? And then I realized that might be the perfect qualification because I'm not going to go and make it up. I'm going to start looking at how do they look at the next 30 years. And I started to find all these documents that explained essentially the vision of victory, um, the Communist Party's vision of the future. That's remarkable and quite a an amazing inclination as an 18-year-old to learn all of those languages. And not that many people can say that they wanted to slow things down by getting a <laughs> PhD at Oxford. That, that might be a first for me. 
So in discussing international relations, commentators often like to draw parallels from recent history. So when they talk about a global rivalry with China, they invoke images of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. But while that was a serious military and political competition, it wasn't ever a real economic one. What's the difference between China today and the Soviet Union of the 50s, 60s, and 70s as rising global powers? Right. I mean, I think in many ways this does harken back to the very early Cold War when you had the entire concept of, of world order was at stake. I mean, the early years in the sort of um, Eisenhower-Kennedy continuum, we were searching for a grand strategy for a way to deal with an authoritarian superpower that challenged our values, that challenged our global position. At that time, of course, there were blocks of states. There may be aspects, um, particularly as some form of technology decoupling takes shape with China. I mean, at the end of the day, we're probably not going to have Communist Party tech companies um, in our homes and such, either in the United States or across the sort of democratic world. There'll be some sort of splitting, I think, in the, the global picture. But we're talking about an integrated world. After the end of the Cold War, you had the American sort of victory and the U.S. preeminence and the, the moment of unipolarity, as many call it, for about 25 years sustained. And our basic strategy towards China was to invite them into this world that we'd built as though that would eventually ask they would conform in a sense to our expectations. They'd liberalize, they'd become slightly less authoritarian, they'd become essentially a partner to the United States. That all failed completely. I think that was wishful thinking of an American foreign policy that did not understand China, that was not really interested in what China's leaders had in mind. And I see this as a historian of modern China who's worked um, extensively in Chinese archives, who's you know done all of this stuff. I mean, they're Actual goals and ambitions are very clear if you understand how they look at not only the 20th century, but the 21st century. And of course, I think I don't think people were really doing the diligence on that. So they, they had this idealistic concept. They were focused on other issues. I mean, eventually the war and terror, I think, superseded any other sort of strategic priorities in the global picture. And in the meantime, American business was headed off into the China market, not just for lower cost supply chains, but to pursue the Chinese consumer. And that led to, I think, an extended um, engagement and integration that's ultimately become incredibly dangerous for American interests. You talk about how China viewed the 20th century and how they're looking ahead. But what is uh, what was the century of humiliation as defined by Mao? And what lessons did subsequent generations of Chinese leaders take from that experience? Absolutely. So this is a very important cornerstone to certainly the Communist Party worldview, but also to a worldview that even predates the Communist Party. And this is this idea, it's called the Bainian Guocha, the 100 years of national humiliation. And the concept is essentially that China was humiliated. It was sort of um, picked apart. It was uh, predated upon by a, all manner of foreign empires in essentially a period of imperial expansion that defined the, the 19th and early 18th century and extended just slightly into the 20th century. This whole sort of cause of China's restoration um, was taken up by, by students in 1919 in the May 4th movement. I mean, there's an entire sort of pre-communist party history of China feeling this humiliation at the hands of other powers, looking to resurrect itself. I mean, that's really Sun Yat-sen who talks about the national resurrection. And then Mao himself considers himself an heir to this whole idea of rejuvenating China. I mean, today they call it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That's Xi Jinping's term. Mao called it the new China. Sun Yat-sen had his own version of this. But China's leaders for the whole of the 20th century were looking essentially to get the country back on their feet. Now, that would sound pretty normal and appropriate. And if you're dealing with a place like uh, the nationalist China, Guomindang, and all that. I mean, they were an ally of the United States. I mean, they held the Japanese empire down in the Pacific while the U.S. sort of uh, 
rolled across the island chains and they were our ally in the Second World War. But then with the Communist Party, you also inject into this a deep anti-Americanism that if we had access to Chinese language as American citizens, we'd have a completely different view of this country. But of course, we, we haven't had that. So the Communist Party sees the United States essentially as its true rival and adversary. They have for quite a long time. That was masked for a while under Deng Xiaoping, who sought integration with the world and basically went along with American engagement. But ultimately, you're winding up with China reverse engineering the US sort of superpower and all its great technology and certain aspects of our innovation system and what have you in order to surpass us. I mean, they see themselves as dominating this century. So talking about that and kind of comparing here, Chinese companies and US companies function very differently. And what advantages does China have in a global economic competition by having companies that are part of their military and political infrastructure? Right. If you look at it this way, I mean, China's corporates are essentially what executes China's global strategy. We can talk about the global strategy and we should, but I got really interested in this. And and my consultancy that I founded um, in 2017 called Atlas Organization, what we do now is we bring an understanding of Chinese grand strategy and Chinese corporate strategy to American companies so that they're ready to compete in this new picture. I mean, ultimately, the biggest difference, I would say, between whatever this contest is going to be called, the US and China, I don't think we have the words yet, in the Cold War, is the only way to turn this contest is to win the economic competition. And the only way to win the economic competition is to win the competition for global business. So you basically have to have American businesses out there um, and allied businesses out competing their, their Chinese counterparts. Their Chinese counterparts are backed by the state. Many of them are subsidized. The China market is set up in a way where it's basically, we call it an incubator. I mean, they take the technology from American firms or from foreign firms of any kind and turn that into national champions. They give them a competitive landscape in which they can thrive within this domestic market and then start to push out across the geography of uh, that the Communist Party has in mind through the Belt and Road. It's an intercontinental geography. It's essentially the entire Eurasian landmass and to build essentially an economic empire. So the other thing that's fascinating, I think, is is you look at issues like the South China Sea, which is a pretty serious uh, military competition. I mean, they've built these um, islands there, militarized them, bomber-capable runways, you know, Hongqi nines, the whole nine yards. Um, and, and it's not Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang down there with a bunch of shovels. I mean, these are Chinese corporates. These are Chinese banks. It's Chinese companies, state-owned corporations that are out there essentially building the islands in the South China Sea, building the ports around Eurasia and the Indian Ocean, setting the foundations um, for an expanded, what we would all understand in the 19th century um, of a Chinese empire. Central to your book, and and I think you just raised this briefly, is the idea of China's pursuit of the China dream. So can you explain the ways in which China will set out to implement this vision by 2049, which is the centennial of the founding of the People's Republic of China? So 2049, and that was actually what I initially wanted to call my book, was 2049, just to get people used to this date. I mean, this is sort of... um, the grand symbolic date of the Communist Party. I mean, they have this idea that on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, which was 1949, they will essentially rule the world. And what that means is that um, China will be the dominant economy. It will have a military that's, as they say, second to none. That's a very sort of polite way of saying it's going to be the biggest. I mean, they're already producing the equivalent of the entire Japanese Navy every handful of years. I mean, they're rolling it out. It's a serious issue. Um, 
They have an industrial policy that seeks to, it's called Made in China 2025, it seeks to dominate 10 key strategic industries, and their, their dates are all tracking to this 2049 date. They say that at that date, we will enact this vision, China will have reascended to the top of the world. Essentially, it's a vision of preeminence and the idea that the 21st century belongs to China. And this is a phrase that many people hear when they've traveled in China. I mean, someone will have a a classmate who says this, or, or they'll talk to an official, or I've just encountered so many people who've heard this, they say, the 20th century was America's century, but the 21st century will belong to China. Now, the biggest problem with this is this is not some kind of changing of the guard with another democracy. It's not that Brazil or India is coming up behind us, and it's basically who can do more business, and how does prosperity and um, order sort of uh, transform because of that. I mean, this is an authoritarian dictatorship that um, its very concept of, of, you know, it calls rights and freedoms, um, tools of Western subversion. They're building concentration camps now where they have millions of people essentially locked up in these re-education camps. They're building a massive surveillance state. They seek to influence not only total control of their own population's sort of uh, political viewpoints and such, but they're increasingly even in influencing our own discourse. And we saw this with the NBA this year. And the NBA thing kind of allowed us to peek under the lid and see that they're doing that to all kinds of other companies, American companies that are in the China market. And this is the China of 2019. So we have to imagine a China after 30 years of ascendancy, perhaps having defeated the United States in a handful of Pacific wars. I mean, their leaders call on a regular basis to prepare to fight and win wars. They are building a military that's designed for conflict with the United States of America. Um, this vision of a forward march built on a concept of a new China that would restore itself and ultimately return to its central position in the world. That's what we're dealing with. So it's about as ideological as you can imagine. And we'll be right back. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a purple mattress, and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain, and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try purple mattress. The purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The purple mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. And we're back. 
Much like Putin's Russia, one of China's goals appears to be the separation of Europe from the strategic interests of the United States. And again, while Russia is focused on military and political alliances, China's focused on the economic ones. How does that work? It's a very dangerous combination. Russia, the way I look at it in a certain sense, has become sort of our, you know, Russia is to the United States as Pakistan is to India. And they're both backed by the Chinese now. So as a former, essentially, I still am a scholar of China-India relations, but um, somebody who, who used to spend most of my time thinking about India and China, you'd watch the way that China managed its relationship with India, where it has this country that it can't quite uh, overcome, but that it does want to put into a kind of strategic headlock. Um, they use smaller proxy states, I mean, in this case, Pakistan most importantly, to to create a sort of military problem for India at all times to keep India's eye off the ball. And, you know, Russia today is... Um, it is a genuine military problem for, for Europe, for the United States. They're punching well above their weight because they're backed by this other country, you know, China, that, that actually can create an alternative center of economic, technological, and even ideological uh, center of gravity that can rival the United States as a superpower through their economic power. And, and Russia simply just has to keep us on our toes, harass us, do all these horrible things. It's a terrible choice for the Russians. I mean, I say this as somebody who – Russia has been a, an important part of my – sort of scholarly life and, and language life and all of that. And when I used to travel around the Russia-China borderlands and talk to people, I mean, these are not people who want to live in a world dominated by China, but Vladimir Putin is um, choosing to play geopolitical chess against the United States and the West based out of some very, I think, deep you know, hatred for the West that's um, essentially going to foreclose his, his country's future by winding up the subordinate partner to an authoritarian empire. It's a very terrible choice. But it's good for China. I want to quote from your book to talk about the goals and objectives of China's current leadership. So you write, if China's revolution had a Mount Rushmore with its major leaders engraved in stone, it would elevate Sun Yat-sen, Mao Zedong, and Deng Xiaoping for certain. They have been called China's three great men. For Xi Jinping, the mission is simple. Gain his place in that grand lineage that is likely what motivates him and drives his ambitions for China to become the fourth great man of China's revolution by raising his nation to global power. Now, at age 66, Xi Jinping most likely won't be China's leader in 2049. So how does that ensure that the China dream continues? Well, that's right. I, th I think she is somebody who's certainly an incredibly ambitious person. I think we see that least of which because he's taken the mask off the grand plan. Um, I think that's always sort of been an aspiration, but it's been kept under under wraps to a certain extent. He's much more comfortable throwing China's weight around talking about their long-term programs. Um, and his mission, as I see it, in his eyes, and this is a Mount Rushmore with a lot of blood on its hands. I mean, Mao Zedong right. killed more people than Hitler or Stalin by some measures. So, And when I used to travel in China, the thing that you'd always hear, and this was Communist Party, sort of speak, but many people would say this was, without Mao, there would be no new China. Without Mao, there would be no rise of China all this sort of thing. So he's sort of idolized in the Communist Party uh, lineage and et cetera. So it's not that they discount this past, but she wants to put himself in there as a sort of bookend on the project of China's restoration. Because if he can take, let's say he's around for another 10 years, maybe 15 years, and that could be, God knows what could happen to his um, strategic acumen in that time. That's another problem with the Chinese system. But 
to turn China into a global power, to begin to take China from being a regional power into a global power, not only economically, but militarily, to have an intercontinentally capable military. I mean, they're, they're already designing a Blue Water Navy that can reach far beyond its region. Their basing concepts, I think, I think go beyond the sort of traditional military geography of China to surpass the United States economically, which many people from Wall Street to, to American strategy to all kinds of people think that's going to happen in the next 10 years. That, I think there's a way to prevent that from happening. But um, she wants to see China take its place as he sees it as a superpower, one that can contest, rival, and ultimately outstrip the United States um, and to set that foundation for whoever comes after him. Um, but this is the time, I think, in Chinese strategy. They had a 20-year period where they called it the period of strategic opportunity. That was 2000 to 2020, um, where they essentially saw the, the United States and the West as not being terribly focused on China. So they'd be sort of unchallenged in that period. You know, Now the game is sort of on. But if he can get through the next 10, 15 years with those around him to cement China's status as a global superpower, I think that's his true ambition. But we can't let that happen. I mean, the United States cannot let this happen. So that leads to my my next question. One of the few areas of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill today seems to be the shared view that China is an oppressive and dangerous regime. And I say Capitol Hill because the Trump administration often sends mixed and conflicting messages on that score. So here's what you write in the book. The international community has begun to recognize the dystopian landscape of human rights abuses inside and even outside China as new technological breakthroughs enable the Communist Party to build a high-tech surveillance state unlike anything seen in history. But what is most troubling is not what China does today. It is what the Communist Party plans on for the future of the world. So what is the scope and magnitude of the modern China's security state? And what are their plans for the future on that front? I think what that really looks like is the integration of what they call the Belt and Road. And that includes many developing countries, but it also includes places like Europe. They have ambitions in Australia, etc. To sort of have coercive leverage over any given country in the world, according to whether that's military power in their own region, whether that's economic power, and we see this them exhibiting this already over places like Australia or even to a certain extent the United Kingdom, ideological power, all of this would allow them to essentially dictate certain aspects of foreign policy in other countries. And you see pieces of this today. I mean, this is happening around their region. It's even happening farther afield. But ultimately to have a fully built security state where they can competently challenge both the United States in the Pacific, India in the Indian Ocean, Europe possibly by way of partnership with Russia, if they're able to sustain that, they can exert, I think, in their in their minds, a certain form of dominance, ultimately, building from influence into dominance over a handful of different continents in which they already exert economic influence. And with that, they can begin to shape, essentially, the politics of any given country or region. So, so ultimately, if they were able to surpass the United States, sort of break down what they call American hegemony, then they can pave the way for their own form of hegemony. And that may not extend globally um, in the sense that North America could remain a certain kind of island state to what's otherwise um, a Europe, sort of Africa, Asia that's integrated through the Belt and Road. And, and the Chinese military is explicitly designed, I mean, this is in their documents, to, quote, protect China's expanding overseas interests. So it's a military that's meant to, to essentially go out into the Belt and Road and show force as needed. Um, they're not quite there yet, but give them another 10 years, they sure will be. And ultimately, uh, that's that's where you lay the foundations for a century in which, like the Pax Americana, you would now have a 
a sort of Chinese world order. All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit here and, and talk about Hong Kong, because since your book was published, we've seen significant civil unrest in Hong Kong. How does that conflict play into your thesis? And what are the short-term and long-term consequences of the Trump administration not voicing support for the people of Hong Kong? Well, I remember talking to a naval strategist who'd lived through the Cold War, sort of within my first year of coming back to the U.S. And he was saying that he thought that the Berlin of our lifetimes, and we think about Berlin uh, in the Cold War as, as a place where it was spy versus spy, it was East versus West, it was the two blocks. Everybody was set up there to, to sort of um, front lines of the contest, Checkpoint Charlie, Berlin Wall, all of it. Um, and he said that was going to be Taiwan. And Taiwan to him, because that would be a bastion of democracy, it was something that had to be protected. It was a place where China clearly has explicit military designs. I mean, they, they seek to unify, as they call it, Taiwan with the mainland. That gives them all kinds of military advantages. And in fact, what's erupted far sooner than that is, is a fight for freedom in Hong Kong, which is one of the world's greatest global cities. And I used to go to Hong Kong all the time to change visas, to just be there. I, I love that city. It's a wonderful city. It's very sad what's going on. So I remember when I was there in like 2006 and I, I'd get off the bus from the airport to the downtown Victoria and there'd be all these posters about, I'd say Auschwitz in China and it would be about the Falun Gong organ harvesting and just all the sort of horrors of Jiang Zemin and others who, who are taking political prisoners and vivisecting them and such. And then I remember in 2011, I was back there and all those signs were gone and instead there were all these signs in a sort of like three mile radius saying rid Hong Kong of the evil Falun Gong cult. And this was the Communist Party's sort of influence operations just taking over that space. And then soon enough, you've got the Umbrella Revolution, and today you have the young people in the streets. And it was just, the Communist Party's been trying to eat that city alive, to make it into another city in China, to introduce the quote-unquote patriotic education program, which essentially indoctrinates young people into what they desire to be a form of absolute loyalty to the party. And the Hong Kongers have lived for most of their lives in a fantastic international city, the entire world comes to that place. So you're trying to impose this kind of arcane communism with Chinese characteristics onto a major global city. And these kids have just said, hell no. And, and I think they're just wonderful. I think these kids are, are uh, so brave. They really are carrying the torch of, of freedom in the world today. And also we, we think about Tiananmen. I mean, the 30th anniversary of the massacres in Tiananmen Square just took place this summer. And that was a time when you had young people out there in the square carrying uh, essentially a Statue of Liberty-esque replica that they called uh, the Goddess of Democracy. And, and this, of course, was not it was, it was their own initiative that they would say, we want a future of rights and freedom. And then the communists killed them all in the square. And I, I think we owe those young people our attention, our constant focus. We, we need Beijing to understand that the world is watching, that if we care about our values, if we care about everything we've ever fought for in the United States and across the rest of the free and democratic world, I mean, human rights, human freedom, all of these incredibly uh, unique features of, of history that, that were won um, very dearly, I think, and which are largely taken for granted today. I mean, we have to see that a place like Hong Kong it represents a, a struggle that's very similar to our own history, one that's for the sake of, of um, what it means to be a citizen, uh, what it means to have rights, and what it means to stand against true tyranny. Congress has taken this up, and that's fantastic. I'm so happy that this is bipartisan. I think that's it, it's just incredibly important for anyone 
who understands this issue to to do their part to make sure it remains bipartisan. I don't just mean Hong Kong, but I mean the whole challenge of China. I think the administration has focused on China. I mean, the same way that other administrations might have a primary issue. The good news about the administration, wherever one is on the spectrum politically, is that I think China is the central international issue that was long overdue. And I guess there, there's more room to be done to say, hey, look, we're watching in Hong Kong. And we need to understand what the end state looks like. I think the Communist Party end state on Hong Kong is to win at a tactical level, to just start degrading the protesters through violence. I mean, at this point, it's probably very likely that the Hong Kong police force is no longer Hong Kongers. It may be imported from Communist Party mainland to go around in uniforms, disappearing young people, beating them, shooting them. I mean, the shootings have started now. I mean, the the attack on China University of Hong Kong is something that there's a ton of that on, on the internet now. But to be aware of the world today, no matter who you are, is to be aware of Hong Kong. It's to be aware of Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, these people who are being put in concentration camps, whose essentially culture and language is being systematically destroyed. Being aware of that, being aware of Tibet, what's happened to Tibet, to understand that all these things matter. And we swept this all under the rug for decades so we could do business with the People's Republic of China. I think that that is one where the error of those decisions is coming back in full force as the place with which we chose to engage now seeks global power. So I think to be aware of this is frankly a duty of any thinking person. While you have praised some aspects of the Trump administration's departure from what you consider to be that 30 years of failed U.S.-China policy, Trump himself brings a moral and political relativism to the U.S.-China relationship. While he talks about China as an economic power, he ignores the military and political aspects as well as the humanitarian abuses. So what do you think the Chinese make of Trump and what do you make of just viewing China in economic terms? Well, I, I guess the nature of American strategy towards China could be summed up in, in a clear phrase that was often used called engage and hedge. And it was this idea that we were going to engage with China commercially and hedge militarily, and that you could basically run that equation for quite a long time. Now, that equation is broken down entirely because as China grows economically, they're reinvesting it into a military that's designed for conflict with the United States. So you're basically funding an arms race against yourself. There are a whole raft of programs that make it very clear how this works, but that's what we've been investing in essentially as a rival superpower entity that turns out to be hostile. And we could have picked up on that in phases. I mean, you look at the history of U.S.-China relations, and it's smart for Kissinger to pull China and Russia apart to, to get China on our side. It's sensible for H.W. Bush to say, um, look, we're dealing with the collapse of global communism. We don't need any problems with China right now. Let's deal with, with a whole bunch of other global issues. It's sensible for companies to see supply chain opportunities and even the markets that would emerge through a rising Chinese consumer. But the whole policy, I think, took on a life of its own that basically said engagement with China is how we're going to do this whole thing. Let's not worry too much about the consequences. It's partly a consequence of short-term thinking. I mean, we haven't had true grand strategy since the early Cold War. I mean, there are admirable aspects of the Cold War. Let's face it, we won. We did a great job. We went to the moon. We created all kinds of new industries. We defeated a global authoritarian superpower and built a foundation for human rights and freedom unlike anything the world had ever seen. And duck and cover in Vietnam and those sorts of, that's not great. And I don't think this new one's going to have those elements because it's the aspect of victory is going to be in winning the economics. But you can't look at China as just an economy and you can't look at it 
as only a national security problem in the sense that the reason we have a national security problem is because of their, essentially their economic growth and their reinvestment into hard power that's designed um, for what it's designed for. And our businesses that are headed off into China to, to make money, the first 20 years of the 21st century, I mean, that that's essentially Thomas Friedman, the world is flat. I mean, there's no political risk. Well, guess what? That's over. I mean, there's more political risk to being in China than pretty much anything in the world right now. So um, I think the administration, I mean, there are a lot of important documents that have come out that people don't read. I mean, the national security strategy, the national defense strategy. I mean, these are, I think, the, the beginnings of an emerging American grand strategy. There are things beyond the trade war, which I think too many people are focused on that, the tariffs, when in fact, items like export control and, and CFIUS reform are, are far more consequential, the entities list. I mean, there's a lot that's going on and it's just going to be important having essentially begun to take a course of action and sound the alarm on this, that we can be bipartisan about this, regardless of who's in power. This is an issue that concerns us all. And Democrats and Republicans need to be equally wise on this subject. Those reforms and what might be the beginnings of a grand strategy, it may be the answer to my next question, things like CFIUS reform, because I haven't seen an article on this front. But I want to ask, what does the U.S. media coverage of our relationship with China miss? What the media misses, perhaps, is the bigger picture. I find that media is incredibly capable on certain aspects. Like, I love the New York Times coverage of human rights. I think NPR does some of that. The Post, I think, carries an important moral torch here. I mean, you see some some really great stuff from people like Josh Rogan and Fred Hyatt. And then the Journal, I think, covers economic and strategic aspects that really matter. I mean, if you want to understand debt, then then they've got that. If you want to understand certain pieces of national security, they cover that. But what nobody's really doing is showing essentially why this truly matters and why this contest. I mean, what we're lacking essentially is um, a concept of what this all adds up to and a reason that it's urgent and that it must be a national priority. Media's job, and I'm not a, my background is in subjects very different from U.S. politics and and media and such. But what we need is a national awakening so that we can take the right kinds of actions on this subject. I think in in many ways, media is the best chance of having a a national awakening. I mean, constant coverage of the human rights issues, of the national security issues. I'd love to see more coverage of the national security issues. Um, I'd love to see more coverage of sort of taking the Communist Party at its word. I mean, realizing that they're conducting this entire influence campaign essentially against the United States, including inside the United States. I mean, their intelligence operations are widely understood by specialists, but not understood by the general public. The nature of China's global ambitions. It takes a real global view to understand China. It's not just for China specialists alone, but human rights, um, sort of uh, national security, and the, the true cost of business in China, i.e. what that means for America's future, for our companies to be out there essentially having their property stolen and being reverse engineered into Chinese national champions. So, And, and I, think, I think this is the kind of issue where it's just going to be important for us to find a kind of unity on this issue and to sort of join hands on this one thing that really does concern us all. I mean, we can have our differences as a country. I mean, I say this as somebody who returns to the United States fairly recently after over a decade living abroad. And I just, I'd really love to see more unity here. And um, I don't know if that's media's job, obviously, but we're going to need that. And I think um, a focus on key international issues that are going to affect our future, China being the the biggest one, it starts somewhere. And I think the media is doing a great job on certain things, but um, constant attention to this, the urgency, the impact, the meaning.
That's what matters. I think that is a perfect point to end on, the need for more unity. The book is called China's Vision of Victory by Jonathan Ward. It is a must read for anyone who wants to understand the U.S. relationship with this important country. Dr. Jonathan Ward, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a Purple Mattress, and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain, and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 